Hi, I'm Chrissy Clark. And if this were one of those true crime shows, this is where the as-heard-previously-on montage would go. Of course, on the surface, federal regulations, the wonky-sounding but, you know, secretly fascinating subject of our show this season, federal regulations do not, on their surface, lend themselves to the tropes of true crime. But then again, this show is all about scratching beneath the surface to tell a deeper story, like the story I started telling you last episode about that ridiculed moment in the history of federal regulations when, as President Jimmy Carter once put it, it took... 12 years and a hearing record of a 100,000 pages for the FDA to decide what percentage of peanuts there ought to be in peanut butter. And actually, this peanut butter case kind of does lend itself to a courtroom drama-style montage. So, let's do it. As heard previously on The Uncertain Hour. The peanut butter grandma, very serious homemaker. She always cooked from scratch. During World War II, the food science industry went to work and totally changed the American food supply. You see, the difficulty with most of these chemicals is the intake of them doesn't make you sick immediately. And she said, oh my God, I'm, I'm killing my husband. She calls the FDA <laughs> and they tell her, why don't you attend this hearing we're going to have? Faced off against all these suits. <laughs> and here are the hearings. Oh, wow. A jar of peanut butter. There's a little bit of peanut butter left around the room. <laughs> Welcome back to the Uncertain Hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. Of course, right now, one of the things people are fighting a lot about is federal regulations. And that brings us to the second part of this epic peanut butter saga. And we're going to go really, really deep on the regulation of peanut butter this episode, as mundane and random as it seems, because it gives you this rare behind-the-scenes glimpse into the inner workings of how a single regulation gets made. And since this one peanut butter rule happens to have a paper trail 11 boxes full in the National Archives, it captures all the twists and turns of the power struggles and the angst-filled moments involved in regulating even the most simple-sounding things. So, let's get into it. You'll remember, last episode ended on a bit of a cliffhanger. It was 1959, and Ruth Desmond, the gurney-climbing, cook-from-scratch co-founder of the Federation of Homemakers and future peanut butter grandma, was prowling the halls of her new favorite bureaucracy, the Food and Drug Administration. And she stumbled on this unassuming, but ultimately history-changing, government notice. These four little paragraphs typed up and sitting on an FDA desk, this proposal to regulate peanut butter. To most of us, the notice would look like a bunch of bureaucratic mumbo-jumbo, but not to Ruth Desmond. I actually have a copy of it here. It starts with this catchy title, peanut butter, semicolon, because bureaucracies love them some semicolons, peanut butter. Notice of Proposal to Establish Definition and Standard of Identity. 
Then there's a bit about how the FDA is developing this proposed peanut butter standard, quote, pursuant to the authority of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, sections 401, 701, and 52, etc., etc., etc. And then we get to the heart of the matter. I'll translate this part a bit. Basically, the FDA was proposing that in order for something to be called peanut butter, it should be made mostly of, drum roll, peanuts. But the proposal went further, drew a line in the sand. Peanut butter, this FDA notice suggested, should specifically be made of no less than 95% peanuts. Remember that number, 95%. 95% peanuts. Practically speaking, here's what that would have meant. Say you were a food company and you wanted to sell a jar of brown paste and label it peanut butter. The FDA was saying you could only call it peanut butter if, when you weighed the brown paste inside that jar, at least 95% of it consisted of actual peanuts. 95% peanuts. Otherwise, you'd have to call it imitation peanut butter or something else. Of course, if you do the math... If peanut butter was made with 95% peanuts... That leaves 5% for optional ingredients. That's Angie Boyce from Johns Hopkins University. Researcher in bioethics. And that 5% of non-peanuty stuff, the FDA had some rules it was proposing for that part, too. They said maybe it should be limited to a few specific ingredients. A few ingredients for flavor. Salt, sugar, honey, dextrose. Dextrose, in case you don't know, is a sweetener that comes from processed grains. And then a few ingredients for texture. Harder to pronounce ingredients. Hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated peanut oil. I'll get to what hydrogenated oil is in a minute. It's fascinating. But the fact of the matter was that Ruth Desmond herself probably didn't know what hydrogenated oil was when she first read this little typed-up FDA peanut butter proposal. Ruth did know enough about food and about food regulations by this time to know two things as soon as she read this government proposal. First of all, that with this 95% peanuts rule, the government was actually setting the stage for an existential debate. When does it stop being peanut butter? When does it stop being peanut butter? One of the deep philosophical questions of our time. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. I would argue that it is. But it was also a really practical question for Ruth and the FDA. Because remember, back when this was happening in the 1950s, food was going through this transformation, this industrialization. So many new chemical additives were being put into basic, familiar foods in our pantry that there was this very real dilemma the world was facing. When have you put so much extra stuff into a familiar thing that it actually stops being that familiar thing? What's the threshold? What is the magic number? And once it crosses that threshold, goes past that magic number, should it be called by a different name? Otherwise, couldn't it confuse or even deceive consumers who were buying something they think they know? So that was one thing Ruth started thinking about when she stumbled on this proposal for the regulation of peanut butter, looking over it there at the FDA, wrapped in her lobbying mink. Thing number two on her mind, peanut butter is, for a lot of Americans, a really big deal. So this is the cabinet. This is the peanut butter grandma's cabinet for her peanut butter. 
And she would stand here and make you a peanut butter sandwich? Right here <laughs> on this counter. She'd stand here and make me a peanut butter sandwich. That is Janet Swagger, Ruth Desmond's daughter. And like many parents in the 1950s, but also today, for Ruth, peanut butter was this affordable, nutritious, go-to food she could give her daughter. For the record, my daughter eats peanut butter about three to four times a week. The average American kid eats 1,500 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches before they graduate high school. Kids love peanut butter. And not just kids. Janet says part of why the peanut butter standard caught her mom's eye was because peanut butter is a go-to source of protein for lots of vulnerable populations. The elderly. People with hardly any money. When people get poor, they have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. A lot of people on, you know, so they need to have some quality in there if they can't afford a piece of meat or, you know, some good protein food. They need peanut butter. Now, to understand why peanut butter, of all the foods in the world, was getting attention from the FDA, and thus from Ruth in the late 50s, I need to give you just a little bit of peanut butter history and peanut butter chemistry. Just a dollop. Let's start with the history. So, as you may know, there's this age-old issue with peanut butter. I mean, everyone knows about peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Then it becomes sort of clumpy and it's harder to spread it. One of the biggest drawbacks for consumers is if peanut butter is not spreadable. That's Suzanne Junod, historian at the FDA. Duke Collier, a retired food and drug lawyer who's written about the regulation of peanut butter. And Kevin Myers, senior vice president for research and development at Hormel Foods, which since 2013 has owned Skippy. And you always got chunks of dry peanut butter (laughs) that you were trying to jaw down. And of course, Janet again, Ruth's daughter. Made a mess of your bread, tore your bread all to pieces. And that issue... That stick-to-the-roof-of-your-mouth, hard-to-spread, tears-up-your-bread issue comes from this natural feature of peanuts. When you grind them up, the oil in the peanuts eventually separates out from the peanut mash, rises to the top, leaving this kind of cakey, dry peanut stuff at the bottom of the jar. Here's Kevin Myers, the skippy guy again. You've probably seen that in peanut butter that has been in the jar for a while or it's been used that you get a little bit of oil separating on the top surface. Growing up, Janet says she and her mom had a simple strategy to deal with this peanut butter problem. You had to stick a big knife into it and and jam it up and down to mix the oil with the peanut butter. But this is the sort of thing that, in the mind of a food manufacturer, is a problem crying out for innovation. And whoever could come up with that fix could probably sell a lot of peanut butter. Which brings us to the chemistry part of our story and that hard-to-pronounce thing, hydrogenated oil. So, really basic, if you grind up peanuts, you release the oil in the nuts, and that oil is naturally liquid at room temperature. At first, the nut mush and the liquid oil stay mixed together in a nice, spreadable paste. But over time, like we've talked about, that liquid oil naturally separates from the peanut mush, which is when you get that oil puddle on top, the cakey stuff on the bottom. But if you could figure out a way to harden that oil, make it less liquidy, more solid, then it would stay mixed in with the peanut mush, all nice and smooth and spreadable, no puddle, no cakey stuff. And about 100 years ago, someone did figure that out. They discovered that if you pumped a bunch of extra hydrogen molecules into the liquid peanut oil, if you hydrogenated it, you could change its chemical structure. 
So rather than being liquid at room temperature, it would be solid. And if you pumped a little fewer hydrogen molecules into the oil, if you only partially hydrogenated it, then the oil would be kind of somewhere in between solid and liquid. And if you took this solid, or kind of solid, fully or partially hydrogenated oil, and mixed it back into the peanut butter? That helps to stabilize that entire mixture. Kevin Myers again of Skippy. And in fact, that was exactly the innovation that the founder of Skippy figured out in the early 1900s, meaning the age-old stick-to-the-roof-of-your-mouthness, the unspreadability, poof, gone. Or in the terminology of a food industry scientist, the peanut butter itself was very spreadable for the consumer. So it goes on a cracker or a slice of bread at the slightest touch of a butter knife. There's never a trace of oil separation, no dryness. The man behind Skippy was the first to patent this process of partially hydrogenating peanut oil to make peanut butter more spreadable. And Skippy took every opportunity to remind people of that fact in their commercials. That famous exclusive Skippy process. That means there's never a trace of oil separation. We keep telling you that because Skippy is made by a new exclusive patented process, your Skippy is still just as easy to spread as the day it was born. Grown-ups never became peanut butter fan until 1933, when a new kind of peanut butter started to appear in grocery stores. When Skippy came on the scene with this new kind of peanut butter, it was a game changer. It was easy to spread, and added bonus, thanks to the hydrogenated peanut oil, it didn't go rancid as fast. And because of all this, Skippy became the number one selling peanut butter brand in America. If you like peanuts, you will like Skippy. But it was also this innovation, this adding hydrogenated oil to peanut butter, that first started to creak open the lid of the Pandora's box, or in this case, Pandora's jar, raising that deep philosophical but also highly practical question about just how much stuff you can add to peanut butter before you have to wonder, when does it stop being peanut butter? After the break, a new peanut butter disruptor hops into town and blows the lid off that Pandora's jar with a shocking secret. A secret that forces the FDA to figure out what consumers are actually getting in their peanut butter and whether they're being deceived. If you want to get smarter about technology, the economy, pop culture, when you're done with this podcast, check out Marketplace's Make Me Smart. Kai Rizdahl and Molly Wood co-host new episodes every week. It's pretty great. You can find it at marketplace.org slash make me smart or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So before the break, I was telling you about this fancy new chemistry, this hydrogenated peanut oil that Skippy had figured out in the early 1900s, bringing more spreadable peanut butter to the masses. And because of that, Skippy stayed the market leader for decades. Like the man says, you like peanuts, <laughs> you like Skippy. They had more than 20% of the peanut butter market. Angie Boyce of Johns Hopkins says Hot on Skippy's Heels was another brand that was making use of peanut oil chemistry. Peter Pan peanut butter is so grand, smoothest peanut butter in the land. Peter Pan. They had about 14% market share. 
But together, these two big brands, Skippy and Peter Pan, they still had less than half the peanut butter market. Well, way less than half. So there are a lot of regional players in the peanut butter market at this point in time. Some of them are mixing in a little hydrogenated oil and artificial colors and flavors. Some are sticking to the old-fashioned recipe, just ground peanuts and maybe a bit of salt and sugar. And nobody, at least outside of the peanut butter industry, is really keeping track of it all. Until, in 1958, a new brand with a little colorful kangaroo mascot hops into town. There's a great big peanut paste in Jip. Jip is never dry, you're gonna jump on Jip. What changes things is then along comes Jif. And fine, new peanut butter brands were coming onto the scene all the time back then. But Jif is different for a couple reasons. First, it's made by Procter & Gamble, one of the biggest companies around, even back then. And second, there's this rumor that starts going around in the peanut butter industry about Jif. No one's quite sure where the rumor comes from. Maybe a company spy? Industrial espionage around peanut butter was actually really common in the 50s. For a while, Skippy wouldn't allow adult males who didn't work for the company into their factories. Or maybe the rumor was just gleaned from careful inspection of rival products. You know, peanut butter manufacturers have a lot of expertise in their product. So maybe through being able to taste the peanut butter and its sensory qualities, what in the industry they would call its organoleptic qualities— they might have been suspicious. What, what word was that? Organoleptic? Organoleptic. What does that mean? Sensory. Ah, I like it. But somehow, through organoleptics or spying, there was this whispering going around that, wait a minute, Jif's peanut butter feels a little too smooth, a little too spreadable. Like, what's in this peanut butter anyway? And just as important, what's not in this peanut butter? which is when something comes across the desk of an official at the FDA Bureau of Enforcement. This was just a very brief um, memo. Angie Boyce is one of the few people still alive who's actually seen this memo. She showed it to me when we went to the National Archives together to look through the FDA's peanut butter files. The memo's dated June 9th, 1958, and starts. In accordance with our conversation, I am referring this peanut butter file to you. We have had at least two complaints from other manufacturers of peanut butter about the addition of foreign ingredients to peanut butter. Complaints about foreign ingredients in one brand in particular. Jif, put out by Procter & Gamble. But what sorts of foreign ingredients? The FDA did a little detective work themselves. FDA had gone in and an inspector had been doing some inspections. That's FDA historian Suzanne Junod again, one of the few other people on the planet who's read some of these internal FDA reports. So the inspectors go snooping around the Procter & Gamble peanut butter factory in Lexington, Kentucky, for three days. And when those inspectors report back, they had some intriguing news. According to Jif's own factory formula, like the kind of thing that might be typed up and hanging on the factory wall, Jif peanut butter was only made of... 75% peanuts. Only 75% peanuts. But also, for texture, up to 20% something else. Crisco. Crisco base. Crisco. You know, the white stuff that people use to grease pie pans. So, yeah, smooth and spreadable, 
but one would assume that uh, customers would not find uh, Crisco in their peanut butter as acceptable. Or maybe they'd be okay with it. The FDA wasn't sure. At first, this factory inspection began a set of quiet, discreet conversations between the FDA and Jif behind the scenes. They were not widely publicized. Burgeoning consumer advocate Ruth Desmond didn't know about them. This was 1958, still more than a year before Ruth would stumble onto that public notice in the FDA office about the proposed standard for peanut butter. And in this moment, this quiet before the storm, people at the FDA are debating what to do, asking themselves, is a jar of brown paste that's made of 75% peanuts and 20% Crisco really peanut butter? Would customers care? Jif was popular, and Crisco was, after all, just another form of hydrogenated oil, not peanut oil. But did that matter? Was this pushing the peanut butter envelope too far or not? Here's Suzanne Junot again. The question, of course, is where's the dividing line between frank adulteration with cheaper ingredients and a legitimate product for which the consumer has shown support? Because that's the FDA's job, as required by law and Congress, to protect consumers, to decide what's acceptable and what isn't, what's safe and what isn't, what's adulteration and what isn't, and ultimately to create regulations, standards. Standards to promote honesty and fair dealing in the interest of consumers. So in this Crisco peanut butter situation, what is fair? FDA officials considered seizing the Crisco peanut butter from the Jif factory or telling P&G that the company could sell Jif, they just couldn't call it peanut butter. Lawyers from P&G flew to Washington to discuss the case. There were lots of letters sent back and forth. And Jif's basic argument was, we're not trying to adulterate peanut butter with cheaper ingredients. We're innovating. We're making peanut butter more spreadable. That's a good thing for consumers. The FDA basically says, but... People aren't expecting Crisco in their peanut butter. So to be fair to consumers... Okay, well, you're making this product that's significantly different from other peanut butters on the marketplace. We want you to label this differently. And so they asked P&G to label the non-peanut hydrogenated oils as Crisco-based, but P&G did not want to do that. Because, you know, from a marketing standpoint... Crisco in your peanut butter just sounds weird. So the FDA comes up with another option for PNG. If you don't want to list Crisco as an ingredient, how about you list the things Crisco is made of? PNG did not like that option either, according to Duke Collier, the retired food and drug lawyer. He used to work at the law firm that represents Procter and Gamble, and he says lawyers who worked on the case told him PNG didn't want to publicize what was in Crisco because it was made of hydrogenated oils from things people might not want to think about in their food. Namely, cotton seeds and... Rape seed. Rape seeds. Which, to the marketing guys' minds, had a lot of uh, bad connotations. Some types of rapeseed oil are actually toxic, but then there's also just the, you know... Well, I think just the use of the word rape, I mean, these are all guys in the Midwest, and they're wearing that... Uh, if they have to list the ingredients, they are going to have less advantage in the marketplace than if they didn't list that ingredient. Right. It, it is a kind of arresting word when mm -hmm. you hear it. So 
Here's Procter & Gamble. They've just come out with this new peanut butter. It's really smooth, not thanks to hydrogenated peanut oil, but to hydrogenated cotton and soy and rapeseed oil. Lots of it. And that's their competitive edge, because those oils are much cheaper to buy than peanut oil. And their notion of competition was that it was going to have less expensive oils than peanut oil. It's just that they don't think consumers need to know all the messy details of exactly what kind of oils they're using. So their view is, look, it's not got as much peanut stuff in it, but it's just as good. But meanwhile, if you're Skippy or one of GIF's other competitors, the ones who tipped the FDA off to GIF's suspiciously smooth peanut butter in the first place, you're like, we've gone to all this trouble to hydrogenate peanut oil squeezed out of real peanuts, and you're just going to stick a bunch of Crisco in the jar? Hey, this is a cheapening, adulterating thing. It's what we've all worried about over all these years, and consumers are going to end up paying more than they should, or they're going to buy something they thought was going to be like our peanut butter, or real peanut butter, and they're going to get something that's much less. So the FDA and Jif and Skippy and the other peanut butter companies go round and round with these intensely practical yet intensely deep questions. Is Jif's Crisco peanut butter recipe innovation or adulteration? Does it matter if the hydrogenated oil in peanut butter comes from peanuts versus cotton seeds or rape seeds? And is peanut butter with only 75% peanuts still peanut butter? If not, where is the line? 80 percent? 90? 100? At one point, the FDA asked the peanut butter industry to come up with its own threshold. Figure out, um, you know, industry self-regulation. Jif thought 75 percent was fine. Skippy wanted higher. You know, start to see these sort of battle lines um, forming because, you know, they have different formulations and different concerns. And so they really um, couldn't come to um, an agreement And finally, the FDA says, enough is enough. We'll come up with some ground rules for what peanut butter is and isn't. At which point... The FDA decides to put out its um, first proposed standard. Which, finally, brings us back to Ruth Desmond. There at the FDA, in her lobbying mink, catching sight of this first proposed standard for peanut butter, those four typed-up paragraphs with the semicolons, that she noticed on a desk at the FDA. And remember, that first proposal for peanut butter that Ruth saw in 1959 was this. Percentage of peanuts? 95% peanuts. That number was based on what the average peanut content was for peanut butter, according to the FDA's most recent industry surveys done a decade before. 95% peanuts. The FDA figured that kept peanut butter nutritious, And as for the contentious issue of oil, the proposal said that peanut butter could only include hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated peanut oil. Not Crisco, not rapeseed oil or cottonseed oil, just oil from peanuts. Ruth Desmond looked at this FDA standard, not knowing the whole industry infighting backstory yet, and thought, sounds great. Go FDA. We're behind you. That's Ruth's daughter, Janet, again. She figured if they're going to call it peanut butter, it needs to have peanuts in it. And to Ruth, 95% peanuts seemed just right. It left room for a little salt and sugar, a little hydrogenated peanut oil, if you're into that sort of thing. A lot of the smaller regional peanut butter companies, of which there were still many back then, they were fine with the 95% peanut standard too. 
that's how much they had in their jars. But peanut butter is big three. If you like peanuts, you'll like Skippy. Peter Pan peanut butter is so great. There's a great big peanut paste in They were not okay with this 95% FDA peanut butter proposal. Of course, it's no surprise Jif wasn't into it. Jif had been making peanut butter with way less peanuts. But it turns out Skippy and Peter Pan had dirty secrets of their own. They didn't make the 95% cut either. Over the last decade, they'd been putting fewer and fewer peanuts into their peanut butter, too. In other words, peanut butter was changing so fast that the FDA's proposal of 95% peanuts, based on the industry standard from just a decade before, meant none of these big brands were entitled to the name peanut butter. None of those big brands of peanut butter would even be able to be called peanut butter. So you can imagine there was a lot of consternation. (laughs) Meanwhile, as Ruth Desmond started to follow all this, she was shocked. Janet remembers coming home from high school one day and her mom telling her, Can you imagine that these scoundrels are trying to pass this peanut cold cream off as peanut butter? Cold cream, that old-fashioned white goopy makeup remover. Janet says that became Ruth's nickname for all the hydrogenated oil in these peanut butters. She said that's terrible. They want to make money, industry, by putting less and less peanuts in the peanut butter and... uh, Like she said, it's children that are eating these peanut butter sandwiches mostly. And here they're trying to put cold cream in there and use less peanuts. She said, it's just peanut-flavored cold cream, like Pond's cold cream that you put on your face. (laughs) That's what she called it. She said, you might as well put some Jif on your face at night. (laughs) We're just as good. Might be cheaper, too. (laughs) In the language of today, Ruth had found her soundbite. And the battle between the peanut butter industrial complex, the FDA, and the peanut butter grandma was on. After the FDA published that first version of the peanut butter standard, the 95% one that Ruth Desmond liked and that would have disqualified Skippy, Peter Pan, and Jif all from being peanut butter, the big three brands pushed back. Obviously, everybody goes lobbying and working in the way you do to say that makes no sense. That's Duke Collier again, the retired food and drug lawyer who used to work for Procter & Gamble's law firm. He says Procter & Gamble realized they weren't going to get away with having as few peanuts in Jif as they'd started with. So they upped their peanuts from 75% to 90%. But none of the big three wanted to go as high as 95% peanuts. And they pressured FDA to bring the standard down, which started a bit of a slugfest. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Because each company wanted the FDA to rewrite the peanut butter standard in a slightly different way to benefit them. In this corner, Skippy. And in this corner, Jim. Round and round, the revisions went. The FDA did bring the peanut threshold down to 90%. 90% peanuts. But at first, the regulation favored Skippy. Skippy, peanut butter. By saying peanut butter could still only use peanut oil. Hydrogenated peanut oil. That's it. No Crisco, meaning Jif still wasn't peanut butter. But Duke says Jif and the lawyers that represented Jif, they had not given up. 
So everybody goes back to work, and um, you can certainly see P&G and its very effective uh, counsel at work. And they went back to the FDA. P&G was taking the view that all these oils were the same chemically and in their effect and in their safety and so forth. So why should only hydrogenated peanut oil be allowed in peanut butter? Why not rapeseed or cottonseed or soybean oil? And finally, the FDA says, fine, Jif. The oil can be other kinds of hydrogenated oil, too. Any kind of oil. Peanut, cottonseed, rapeseed, a Crisco blend. Just as long as you list the names of the non-peanut oils on the label. The FDA may have been thinking they'd finally found a compromise that would make Skippy and Jif happy, but they were wrong. And Jif says, okay, that doesn't work for us because we have to say, you know, cottonseed oil, rapeseed oil, horrifying, etc. So now Jif isn't happy because they still have to list rapeseed oil on the label. Skippy's not happy because the FDA's given in to their big competitor and let them put Crisco in peanut butter in the first place. These fights went on for six years. And as these two heavyweights, Skippy and Jif, were duking it out, meanwhile, Ruth Desmond, the rookie, was putting together her own team to give the whole peanut butter industrial complex a run for its money. And in this corner, Ruth Desmond and the Federation of Homemakers. First was the letter writing campaign. Ruth Desmond, the alerter, used her newsletter to get the word out to homemakers across the country about this peanut-flavored cold cream. And it worked. So this looks like it is a folder full of consumer letters. Tons and tons of uh, letters from consumers about the peanut butter standard. Angie Boyce, the bioethics researcher at Johns Hopkins, took me through the boxes and boxes of letters that were sent to the FDA about the proposed peanut butter regulation. They are now stored at the National Archives. Hundreds of them. We spent an afternoon reading through them. Gentlemen, please, underlined, do not allow peanut butter to be adulterated. I understand there is some controversy over how many peanuts should be in peanut butter. Let's have plenty of peanuts in peanut butter. Stick to the roof of your mouth kind. Some are typed, some are handwritten. This is on pink stationery. As a mother of two sons, I feel it is not in their best interest to permit peanut butter to be adulterated. One person <laughs> sent a telegram. This is a telegram? <laughs> That just says, 100% peanut butter, please, please, please. One letter from a Miss Nicosia was on New York Stock Exchange letterhead. It's an important food for children. It was followed by another letter on the same letterhead from a Mr. Kendall, saying his secretary's use of that stationery was inappropriate and shouldn't be regarded as a comment by the New York Stock Exchange. Incidentally, we probably consume... 100 pounds of peanut butter every year. They were from all over the country. We would like the protection of the regulatory agency in our interests. California, Maryland, New Jersey. Sincerely, very truly, Jane Olhouse. This is Robert Walker. Carol Tyson. P.J. Mahler. So much passion for peanut butter. From Ruth and her growing army of concerned homemakers, from the various peanut butter companies with their vying peanut butter formulas, from the officials at the FDA who felt duty-bound to promote honesty and fair dealing in the interest of peanut butter consumers. And all this passion comes to a head in the fall of 1965 inside an FDA hearing room in Washington, D.C. It was a room with, as one journalist noted, peanut-colored walls. 
By this point, six years had gone by since the FDA had proposed their original peanut butter standard. It had been revised and revised and revised again, and still no one was really happy with it. Not Skippy, not Jif, not consumers like Ruth Desmond. And then, because of this quirk in the details of the law overseeing the FDA, the agency says there were so many objections to the peanut butter proposal, they needed to hold this thing that's sometimes called a formal evidentiary hearing. What was her strategy with the peanut butter hearings? To win. (laughs) So how did that work out? That's next time on The Uncertain Hour. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I should mention we reached out to Jif and Peter Pan, those brands' current and former owners, including Procter & Gamble. They all declined to comment for this story. The Uncertain Hour is produced by me, Chrissy Clark, as well as Caitlin Esch, Maria Hollenhorst, Tommy Andres, Lyra Smith, and Tony Wagner. Jake Gorski is our amazing engineer. Nancy Fargali is the senior editor. Satara Nieves is the executive producer of Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Let us know what you think of this show. Our Twitter account is at Uncertain Hour. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us continue the work that we do. And you've heard me say that The Uncertain Hour is produced by Marketplace, but something you might not have heard is that we're a nonprofit news organization. Part of our funding comes from listeners like you who believe that the stories we tell and how we tell them are important. Thanks to everyone who donates to make this kind of reporting possible. Visit uncertainhour.com slash season two if you'd like to know more. 